Welcome to the Marketing Millennials, the No BS Marketing Podcast. I'm Daniel Murray, and join me for unfiltered conversations with the brains behind marketing's coolest companies. The one request I tell our guests, stories or it didn't happen. Get ready to turn the f*** up. Precision really does halt your innovation, your ability to experiment, your ability to think outside the box, to continue to differentiate yourself from your competitors, etc. Getting like caught up in the precision or nailing the numbers is like probably the least innovative thing you could do and the way you could spend your time versus getting those directional qualitative and quantitative insights, initial learnings, and then furthering to like fuel that experimentation through what you know based on today's numbers. It's just like a different mentality, I think, in the beginning. That's not how I thought about marketing. What do brands like Warby Parker, Dr. Squatch, Vital Proteins, and Blendjet all have in common? They're increasing their abandoned cart revenues by over 10x with retention.com. Visit retention.com to book a demo today. What's up, everybody? We're back and we're here with Kaylee. She's normally interviewing a bunch of people and I got the chance to interview her today. So I'm so excited about this. Kaylee, welcome to the pod. Yeah. Thank you so much for asking me to come on. Excited to be here. I want to kick it off and ask, how did you get into marketing? What's your story? I don't know if my story is like as interesting as others. I think that I'm a first generation college kid, went to college with literally no clue what to do, what to major in, how that was applicable to life after college. Started as a business major, absolutely hated all of the courses. Switched like halfway through the first semester to marketing. Didn't really know what that was. I think the majors like corp com or something. I took a lot of like PR classes, things that also I don't actually use <laughs> in my day job, but was much more attracted to like the curriculum. So yeah, ended up there and then I'm born and raised and still live in Nashville. Um, you know, 10 years ago when I was starting my career, Nashville was and still very much is known for healthcare. So lots of healthcare jobs. I ended up at a, a healthcare gig doing marketing, which morally felt a little ick. So I didn't last very long there. But um, it was a great structure. It was a very traditionally structured marketing team. I was obviously the bottom of the totem pole and was exposed to every possible, like, traditional department or division within a marketing org. And I was really, really attracted to digital marketing at the time, learned as much as I could there, and then jump-started into the SaaS world, never looked back. One of the things that I would say that you're great at is demand generation. And I want to dive into it because I think you have a different philosophy than a lot of companies out there on creating, capturing, converting demand. Could you go into that philosophy so everybody could just get a background on how you think about demand generation? Well, let's be real. Like when I was doing demand gen chat and interviewing tons of demand gen marketers, the brass tacks is that everybody defines demand gen so differently. And it's such an anomaly. I feel like it's very specific to SaaS. You don't see those titles outside of the SaaS world very often, which means there's a lot of like ambiguity behind what demand gen really is. And everyone just kind of tailors their definition to what they need for their business at that time. What it comes down to is that most often demand gen marketers are wearing that title, but are practically running a lead gen operation, capturing demand. 
and that's really it. They don't encompass the other parts of that philosophy to the degree that they should to make sure that their business is efficiently and effectively getting out in market. So I think it's really important to measure the three. So creating demand is an effort to put behind getting your brand story out there, your narrative, your POV. Feature parity and feature functionality is like no longer going to get you to the top of the ranks in terms of like driving revenue and attracting business. Everybody can build the same features you have. So you need to really focus on creating demand. And you do that by telling your story effectively in market to the people that should be hearing who you are, what you're for, and how you can help them. And I think not not a lot of demand gen is allowed the permission or the luxury of actually doing that effectively. We can go into that a little bit more. Capturing demand is where most people spend and prioritize their budget because it is like, quote unquote, like the most trackable or directly attributable to ROI. Uh, capturing demand are things like paid search, retargeting, direct response, paid social advertising. Those types of plays are really, really common and spend and take up the majority of budgets today. And then converting demand. Once people are actually on your website, what are you doing to make sure they have a streamlined conversion path, not only to submit a form, but like to get on a call directly with their appropriate account executive at the time that works best for them? Those are the three big components that I think make up like effective demand gen marketing and aren't really being prioritized or weighted like they should be. I want to go into the balance of how you think about the capturing and creating demand. How should people think of spending time capturing how much time and what should they be doing versus creating? And then I know the other part is converting, but that's kind of the bottom of both of the these these two parts. So I'll go into those two first. I think there are a lot of components to it. There's a time component to it, of course, but there's also a financial resourcing, you know, part of the conversation that needs to be brought to the light too. When it comes to how most companies do it today, 80% of your budget is probably going to line items that are more direct response, more favorable to capturing demand. Like every great marketing answer, the response is like, it depends as to what your actual split should be. It depends on how competitive your industry is, how well your brand is known today. You know, honestly, like how different you can actually get out in market and tell your story. Like all of those are going to be different levers or factors that you should consider when figuring out what your media split in terms of like spend or ad dollars should be between those functions. Most companies that, especially at Refine Labs that we see when they come in the door, they are spending too much of their spend on capturing demand and are really overinflating their ROI because they don't actually need to be putting that many dollars or working dollars against paid social, paid search, et cetera, in order to convert. So most split is 80% capturing demand and 20% creating demand. I think that you should split the difference in the beginning and lean more towards 60-40s. Like when we were at Chili Piper, we spent 60% of our media spend towards creating demand and 40% to capture. And it really did wonders for our business. Obviously, as we continue to prove out the model, we continued to like push that split even further and further. By the time I left, it was 70-30. But creating demand, brass tacks is just much more efficient for your overall ROI. Less trackable, which is why execs don't love it, but much more effective in the long term. Let's get into that juicy item of less trackable. So attribution, the marketer's favorite topic that hasn't been figured out by most people yet. I know Refine Labs is doing a great job with that. How do you 
let's say balanced like having or track this this new demand creation effort so you could prove to a a boss that I am doing the work that I should be doing. This is actually proving revenue versus the old school visibles and stuff like that, which just saying like organic search did it or so how do you think about that? Organic search and direct always get all the credit. So obviously part of what attracted me to Refine Labs is that I do believe in a lot of the philosophy and methodology that we're deploying for our customers. And to be fair, like I deployed most of this at Chili Piper before I came here. So I will preach on some of what we are doing for our customers and how it's impactful and how other people can go and stand this up for themselves too. The fact of the matter is that software-based attribution is only going to tell you so much. We know the biases that are obvious and you know heavily weighted towards direct and organic come from software-based attribution. And that doesn't the software just hasn't come along for the ride yet. It hasn't evolved enough to actually show up and tell us where your buyers are seeing you, engaging with you, being impacted by your brand, your narrative, your product today. Odds are it's not direct and it's not organic. It's probably something else. So standing up self-reported attribution, which is just a question you can ask on your form. How did you hear about us? Open text field. Don't create biases by creating a dropdown, et cetera, will help you at least get a little bit closer to where your customers are actually hearing about you, which of those mediums is converting the fastest, driving sales cycle velocity, et cetera. On the back end, though, it creates a really interesting forum for you and your revenue team, your go-to-market team, however you're structured, to have not only quantitative conversations, which I feel like are super common, right? You run the numbers, you stand it up in a deck, you put it in a dashboard, whatever it is, and you say, oh, 80% of our traffic is coming from direct. And then, like, what do you actually do after that? Like, I'm really not sure what most marketers do with that information. Probably nothing. So then those meetings become, like, not very impactful, very redundant, because I'm sure it's saying similar things every week when you do your stand-ups. You can start layering in some of this SRA data, self-reported attribution data, and having qualitative conversations with that revenue group as well. What's interesting is that more common than not, the things that are now surfaced in self-reported attribution, your sales team probably already knows about, right? Like these customers are probably telling, or prospects are probably telling your sales team similar things. They just didn't have a way to report it at scale before. So that's like super easy to implement on your conversion forms. So you can start getting a better understanding of where your customers are coming from. Outside of that, I think another way to go about it, if you're getting pushback from your execs, your managers, et cetera, about adding forms because it's gonna decrease your conversion rate or whatever their pushback is, there are totally ways to go around that. One, you can implement testing it. Just run a straight A-B test 50-50. We've run that several times with customers and non-customers of Refine Labs and have found not a single one of the experiments we've run have statistically impacted the conversion rates at all by adding that question on the form. So take that for what it's worth. I would encourage others to test it as well. Other than that, I think actual conversations with your customers, if you really can't push through the barriers of adding an additional field to help with your attribution woes from the software that you're using, you can also just pick up a phone and call your customers, have these conversations with them one off and ask them how they heard about you. Yeah. One thing that I I experienced a lot because I was in marketing operations and I saw budgets getting moved to, let's say, Google branded search and stuff like that because attribution 
one thing that's hard to prove is like, hey, let's like start doing these efforts that are going to bring in creating demand, which is like what you said, storytelling and that stuff like that. What are some of these efforts that you recommend that people should try out? I know it's de it depends is the answer, but what are some efforts that you've seen that have created great ways to create demand? Yeah, well, let's talk about like personal story, right? I think your whole thing is like stories or it didn't happen or something is your catchphrase. So let's do this like a story before Refine Labs, right? I know that it's really easy to be at Refine Labs and to push this narrative when our CEO deeply believes to his core that, you know, so it's like we get a pass. Our CEO gets it. So that's why we have a really long runway to test and experiment things that maybe other people don't have that much support in their existing structure. So before joining Refine Labs, I was at a company called Chili Piper. We didn't have a CMO or a proper marketing executive. So the marketing leadership leadership team that was at the director level that we did have all reported into our CEO, who's a sales guy by trade. So we had some of these very similar constraints that other marketers are probably facing around, yeah, making the switch. Like, how do we convince these people to say, these things are all trackable, but we want to move away from trackable into, you know, dark social or whatever we want to call it at the time. The way that we did it, actually, we didn't ask for any investment. We didn't ask for any of the like line items in our marketing budget to be moved from one bucket to another. None of that. We started recording Zooms, which was a, you know, I started, I became the like SME. We were primarily selling Chili Piper to demand gen marketers. So easy enough for me to talk to other demand gen marketers. We'd ask them to come on a Zoom. We'd record it. We'd edit it ourselves with, you know, iMovie or whatever was free on our laptops that we had. And we started pushing out content on Spotify and organically on LinkedIn. The only like paid component of it was my time. I was dedicating four hours at the time, four hours of my week to producing content and getting out there, networking with other people that were demand gen marketers within our personas, within our target account list, all of that technically for $0 in the line item. We added an SRA field to our demo conversion form. We also added um, a field in our opportunity object for the sales reps to ask for like probing follow-up questions if the SRA value that they gave us was like vague or non-descriptive the sales team would ask a follow-up and we started getting a ton of response saying we heard about you on the podcast we heard about you on demand gen chat I saw you guys on my LinkedIn feed some people would even say specifically like oh this is the LinkedIn post that caught my eye and that's what actually started rolling the ball for our CEO to get his attention for him to be like oh this is actually a thing. How can we fuel this? How can we invest more, et cetera? So it's, I'm not going to say it's like flip a switch because that was not the case at all. It was no magical moment where we flipped a switch and all of a sudden like revenue started falling from the sky. Not the case. But those first couple of steps, putting in like lots of effort for us to try and find a way to systematize this for basically free really did wonders over time. I just want to clarify for people who don't know what SRA value is. What is that? Self-reported. Yeah. Self-reported attribution. Okay, cool. Uh, so I love this approach of self-reported attribution because you can look between what efforts you're doing and what efforts you're not doing. Also, one thing that I think about when, and I come from an ops background, which is a numbers background, but the way I think about it is that data should just be a way to inform decisions. It should be a compass that you look at and say, okay, we're heading in the right direction. This is the channels that seem to be working. But I know as a marketer intuitively that I 
have experience, I can try things and I could do things myself. Doing this is just a way to, it's funny because really why we do numbers is one, to just prove that like our hypothesis is true or not. And two is to show executives that, hey, this is why we should invest in these channels or not. And so we don't get fired. Basically, that's Yeah, it's that's job security. Reason. No, yeah, it is. Exactly. Yeah, it is 100%. But I think too, you said something that's super interesting that I'm like becoming, as I grow into my career in early days, I was always the numbers person too. And it was always about like precision and accuracy for me. I remember we would just spend hours in spreadsheets, just like making sure we're just like nailing the formulas and nailing the accuracy of all of the data and like research that we were putting together for our executives or for our board or whoever it was. And you just said directional. And I think like that's the biggest like unlock for me in the last couple of years is that like precision really does halt your innovation, your ability to experiment, your ability to think outside the box, to continue to differentiate yourself from your competitors, et cetera. Getting like caught up in the precision or nailing the numbers is like probably the least innovative thing you could do and the way you could spend your time versus getting those directional qualitative and quantitative insights, initial learnings, and then furthering to like fuel that experimentation through what you know based on today's numbers it's just like a different mentality, I think, in the beginning. That's not how I thought about marketing. Same here, because I I have been a very b- big number person all, all my career. I had Monday metrics every Monday, going through Monday metrics. When I started doing social media myself, I saw the impact of what things came in DMs and all these, these things that numbers couldn't explain in a spreadsheet. So... I knew gut feeling that what I was doing is right, but I couldn't portray it. And that's why I think the self-reported attribution, all this stuff is doing great. But also like sometimes the best marketers that are the leaders of these companies are need to take these risks and saying that, hey, I actually trust my gut that this is the way to go. I have some data to prove it, but everything is a scientific experiment in marketing. Everything has a hypothesis. You have to prove your hypothesis. Then you get data back. Did it work or not? And then you go back to the beginning. Like it's a, a continuous like loop of like running experiments. It really is, and I think it like centers around those positive signals. Like directional insights are really just you receiving positive signals. What is a marketing hill you would die on? I think there's still something that's like not spoken about enough about the power of being close to your customers. It's incredible to me the amount of marketers that I talk to that have never stepped outside of their traditional lanes and are just like spending and deploying crazy amounts of dollars, media resources, et cetera, running all of the advertisement, putting together messaging and positioning for their company, but have never talked to their customers. So I think that might be like my most current hill to die on is the power and influence of being close to your customers. That should be your competitive advantage in this market. Do you think it was easier for you to make a transition, like say for Chili Power to Refine Lance, because you deeply understood marketers as the audience? Like, Because I also give a lot of credit to marketers who go into industries that are just like completely crazy and they and they trying to come up with messaging and understand let's say an IT professional or like a it's such a hard job like it's I give so much credit job. so I always say like if I would to build a social presence again 
and I was doing for an IT audience, I probably couldn't do the same amount of work unless I got into the role and talked to a bunch of people all the time and gone these communities and understood them. I would not be able to do the same thing uh, as I'm doing now because I it's such a good point. So like fun fact, I actually didn't go directly from Chili Piper to Refine. I actually left Chili Piper to join an ed tech company to do that same thing because I've spent the majority of my career marketing to marketers. And I have two young children um, that are in early education themselves. This was a SaaS company that's selling into the early ed space. Primary buyers were um, preschool owners, operators, directors, administrators, like that persona which was completely foreign to me. So yeah, like the first 30-day ramp when I was at Brightwheel was all about figuring out who our customers were, having lots of conversations with them. I developed like a couple of repeatable questions that I really wanted to get deep with with our customers so I could understand like who these people are, where they spend their time, why they bought us, what they love, what they don't love, how they talk, I think was the most important thing. I found myself writing like copious notes about the messaging and phrasing that they use because it was truly so foreign to me and not the way that I would have described our own product. So yes, I think there's like definitely a leg up marketing to marketers. We It is a, a nice bubble because we do get each other and understand a little bit better pain points and solutioning. But I do think that there's still a, a method to the madness if you are a marketer not marketing to marketers. I also think one of the unspoken benefits of dark social and doing the podcasts and social and all this stuff is doing inherently doing customer research and getting closer to the customer. Because if you're doing these events, these virtual events, these podcasts, the start social, that's where you're going to get people who are lowering their corporate shell and talking like they would talk to a human being. So it's so hard to measure this as a, but it, when I started doing podcasts and stuff, I heard started hearing how people speak that I would never have thought like SRA value. Like I hearing Chris and you talk about it, I would never have known that if I didn't like listen and seen it on social or hear hear you talk. Um, so that's why I just wanted to make that point that the benefits of dark social or doing creating demand is not only hey I'm going to bring revenue in the door. It's getting closer to the customer, like you said earlier, as your deal that you would die on. It really is. Yeah, it really is. And I think that even taking a step further, the feedback loop is real. Forming those connections and building that network is like, I know I have like a lot of chili paper examples, but we did a lot of cool stuff there. Building those networks and like starting to have those conversations one off is actually what helped us fuel building our customer advisory board, which was another huge unlock for all of our personas. Without us like connecting, making those connections and building those relationships, we probably would have never formed a cab, which was one of the biggest drivers of developing feedback for our product roadmap for the actual app itself. So there's lots of levers that come off of just like starting the conversation and whether you're whether your conversation is with a marketer that, you know, maybe talks and prioritizes the same skill set as you or if it's somebody that's far outside of your traditional lane lots of like downhill benefits from just starting the conversation. Say you're a younger marketer getting into demand gen. You totally believe in the way that you're talking about of creating demand versus capturing demand, but you're in an organization that is slowly getting it, but they don't really get it. How would you as a younger marketer 
try to influence this behavior of your organization? What were some things that you would do? Yeah, I think there's definitely a way to go about this transformation that isn't as drastic as maybe it sounds. If you're in a more, let's call it like traditional organization that's still heavily leaning into a lead gen model, maybe you are gold or compensated or your KPI is like leads or MQLs or MQAs or whatever terminology you're you're using in your organization for your business model. And you're not quite ready as an org or a leadership team to move to a demand gen model where you as a marketing organization are attached to qualified pipeline or revenue, et cetera. There's definitely a blended approach, right? We work with several companies here that do take a blended model that are running their lead gen program alongside a true demand gen function in parallel. And they are just splitting the difference to understanding the efficiencies that could come from switching. So they actually build both models side by side and run them to be able to like gather their own data set to form a hypothesis around like, is this actually going to work for us? Let's prove it out, et cetera. There are smaller things too. I think that in other organizations, before I was at Refine Labs, we always had a line item in our marketing budget called a slush fund. I'm sure other people have more sophisticated terms for it, but it's basically like a, hey, we've got some extra budget. We have to figure out this year how to deploy it, et cetera. Make a case with your leadership team. Hey, I've seen this company and this company and this company do this, et cetera. I'm sure you could have conversations with other marketers that are running a demand gen model or something similar to what you'd want to model. Get some data points from them. Use that to fuel a case internally to leverage some of those slush fund dollars to start deploying some of this. I even think that, like I said, like if you happen to be the SME for your brand or you can form internal relationships with somebody that would be the SME for your brand and you can help guide them and steward them into becoming like a outward facing SME for your brand with little to no additional budget. I think the power is all in like perception. And if they can get the ball rolling, you can help them get the ball rolling. Other people will see it and start to take notice and follow suit. So there are like small wins, I think, that you can stand up even if you don't necessarily have immediate buy in from your leadership team. One of the great points you're making here, too, is when nobody's saying make the switch overnight, what Kaylee's saying and other people are saying is just test it and see if it works. Test it to see if it actually improves pipeline. Test it if it sees it. We're not saying go from the lead gen model all the way to the self-reported attribution and create, create pipeline and being measured on revenue. We're just saying, hey, if you would to test like, 10% or 20% or 30% of your efforts into this, what would that, the impact on your pipeline? And if that proves to be right, like anything in marketing, then you invest more and more budget into that. What people don't get is like, it's not like you go into an org and be like, hey, let's, let's do this today and it changes. You, it's like a machine. You have to unpack the machine and then rebuild it from the, the ground up again. You do. Yeah. And I think a good way to start and look at it is like go back to those three pillars, create capture demand, figure out what's working well for your business today and what's not. I think um, several businesses that I've joined or that I've advised for or partnered with in some way actually have like a huge level of opportunity within the demand that they because they're spending a lot of money capturing demand. A lot of people are capturing demand and have a 30 percent show rate on their meetings, on their demos. So it's like, okay, well, you have a huge problem with actually converting demand. That's where you should start, right? So I think there's just a lot of analysis and like understanding what's going on in your business. That's where you start. That's your baseline. 
A lot of people will probably have huge opportunities creating demand. But the fact of the matter is, if you're leaving pipeline on the table today, then you should probably start there. Those are, you know, if you're starting with converting demand and gathering more pipeline that's on the table that you would have lost anyways, you can use those wins in that test to fuel more learnings to go out and create demand with budget maybe they wouldn't have given you or granted you access to otherwise, right? So it's all a very cyclical process. But yeah, I think find your biggest gap and start there. And it's definitely not going to happen overnight. The funny thing is marketing could be simplified and like B2B marketing could be simplified into in just two things is you either have to bring more into the bucket or you have to make convert the bucket. Um, <laughs> like, like there's two things like, and a lot of the time people are bringing a lot into the bucket. They're just not converting it well. And maybe it's, there's two problems. It's either there's something wrong with their, the process that they have or their forms or something like that, or they just bringing in bad people. And that's where the math problem becomes easier to like fix. It's like, figure out that and then figure out if I raise pipeline by like conversion of pipeline by 2% or if I raised sales by like 2% or I raised leads by 2%, what would that be effect on the bottom line? And then spend your effort on those things. And then you can go do the next thing and the next thing. That's where the math, where math comes in. Math is not supposed to be like, hey, scientifically, we need to spend one million two hundred thirty-three thousand forty-four on Facebook ads this quarter to get the pipeline. So this has been great. I want to ask, give you one or two minutes to say where people could find you, your journey, or anything you want to share. LinkedIn is like really the only place I'm active. So if you, you know, want to connect with me, shoot me a question, riff on anything marketing, I'm always there. Um, otherwise. Chris and I do a live show. Chris is my CEO. We do a live show and every Tuesday at noon central. You can find the link to sign up on our website, refinelabs.com. Also, and their live show is great. If you want to understand, I'll also give a shout out because I like the switch I you made. The, the show is like more tactical and data-driven advice that marketers could take into practice and use to like leverage to talk internally that's the goal chris has obviously done hundreds of episodes on his previous show that were consulting advice etc and we heard lots of feedback from customers and prospects etc that marketers really just need help understanding how to activate and action all of these learnings i feel like we're all our feeds are all filled with like insights tips knowledge etc but people are stuck on the hurdle of figuring out how to activate or deploy all of that knowledge. And so we're really trying to live up to that promise of providing data and insights. So yeah, it'd be great to have anybody listening and hopefully we can just continue to grow, grow our data set so that we can help other people learn from the research that we're conducting. Well, thank you so much for joining. This has been great and I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next week to hear more great insights from marketing's coolest operators. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the Marketing Millennials podcast and giving it a five-star rating. It helps bring more marketers into our community.